Heavenly Father, it is our desire as your people to live our lives in such a way that your name is lifted up, not torn down. In our profession of Christ, in our walk in faith, we do not want to be be a people that bring reproach upon your name. We don't want to be a church that looks upon you, our gracious and merciful God, abounding in steadfast love in any other way than who you truly are. We praise you for the preservation of this text that we might hear from the prophet Joel And see how you judged your people then in order to call them back. And how even now your hand of judgment is upon us that we might return to you and be healed. Father, we as a people in a culture do not want to hear about your holiness or your judgment. I pray you would give us ears to hear this morning. As a people with rebellious hearts, we do not want to think that you would move upon your church like this. Give us ears to hear, Lord, that your rebuke, your admonishment is a call to return to you. And then not just for your church, but for all mankind. And so, have your word speak this morning, I pray. Have us as your people hear it and respond to it that you might be glorified this hour. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. If you were here last week, I'm glad you returned. There was sufficient gospel testimony in the message last week. But Joel draws us in here to verse 12 through 17. And he tells us the right response to this knowledge of the day of the Lord coming for each and every man. And so this is a completion of the sermon from last week. What God is calling us to here is hard to hear. Because what the judge is saying to all mankind is trust me to save you. And I don't have to tell you trust is a difficult thing these days. It's hard to trust a man. It's hard to trust what someone says. People, like me, are fickle. We have a tendency to let one another down. And so in our passage today, we have the creator of the universe saying to the people that he has just judged with this locust plague to return to him and be saved. And he calls that upon all mankind. He says to everyone everywhere, judgment is coming. Trust in me. I'm a holy God and I must judge all sin. Come to me and trust in me. So the the large question today is how do we trust God? The people of Joel's day had to. I mean, they were under judgment. Judgment had already come upon them. They were experiencing it. And now the prophet is saying that the same God who judged them is telling them to return to him. 
Here they are. Their, their land is barren. It's stripped clean. They have no crops. They have no vineyards. Their livestock are dying. A drought has ensued as a result of the plague. There is a famine and there is death. Judgment has come upon the land. And if you were here last week, you now know that that was just a trailer. That was a foreshadowing of the great day of the Lord, the great day of judgment to come, the cosmic judgment upon all mankind. We saw it as near, as terrifying, as inescapable, and that no man can endure it. And if you were listening, and I pray you were, Joel was saying, this is a revelation of that day and a call by God for you to be saved. And God always does those together. He says, judgment is coming and be saved. And so I want us, with all our spiritual might, with the best spiritual ears you have, I want you to be fine-tuned to hear God speak to you this morning in light of the day of judgment that is coming because He is calling you to return to Him. Saved or unsaved, this morning God says to you, return to me, return to your Creator. So let's, let's see if we can hear that. The call is for all mankind. I want to ask a few more questions. I had some questions last week. We tried to answer them. I want to ask a few more and see if we can, by God's grace, use the text to answer these. Number one, when should you return to God? Number two, how should you return to God? Number three, why should you return to God? And number four, what will compel God to receive us? When should you return? How should you return? Why should you return? And if you do, what assurance do you have that he will actually receive you as God and you, his son or daughter? So those are the four I want to I ask and I want to answer. And by God's grace, you'll have ears to hear. Are you with me this morning? Okay, good. Number one, when should we return? To return implies that you're away, right? The, the call to return implies a separation or a distance from a place that you should be. So God is calling His people in Judah in the time of Joel to return to Him because their sins had separated them, and as a result, it brought the judgment of the locust plague. They were unable to live. They were unable to worship God. Remember, the grain offering and the drink offering were no more, so they could not go into the temple and worship God as he had prescribed. And yet, even in the midst of this, Joel speaks hope. There's despair, there's death, there's no sense of hope in the future, and yet Joel brings hope back to them. Because this is the prevailing message of the entire Bible. It's not that God judges and there is no hope, it's that God judges and in the midst of judgment there is great hope. When Solomon, when the temple was finished, the first great temple was finished, and Solomon dedicated it, at the end of the dedication that night, God appeared to Solomon. Listen to this. Listen to what he said to Solomon. This is from 2 Chronicles chapter 7. God said, I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice, the temple. And then he said, when I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, judgment, or command the locusts to devour the land, judgment, 
He said in verse 14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Going all the way back to the first temple and the institution of it by Solomon, God is saying, when I judge you, turn back to me. Humble yourself. Seek my face. Turn. I will hear. I will forgive. And I will heal. That's the covenant promise of God. It's not a life of perfection. We cannot do that. It is in the midst of judgment to turn back to Him in humility, in prayer, and to seek Him out. And God says, if you do that, I'll heal you. If you do that, I will save you. So God says to the prophet Joel, even now, did you, did you miss that? Even now, return to me. The land is destitute. They have no crops. The animals are dying. Their children are dying. And he says, now, now is the time. Come back to me. Come back to a relationship with me. He says even now because it's never, ever too late. I want to say that again, and I want you to hear it. He says to you, return to me even now, because it's never, ever too late. If you are filled with despair, God is saying, it's not too late. If you are discouraged with a life of sin that you feel still ensnared by, God's saying, it is not too late My beloved, it is never, ever too late as long as you have air in your lungs to turn back to God and be healed. And that is the most glorious message of the gospel of grace. It's never too late to be healed by returning to God. It is a prevailing theme throughout the Old and New Testament. God is constantly calling his people, return to me even now. Return to me even now, today. I had a young man I was sharing the gospel with years ago. He was a rough kid, no dad, in and out of jail, hard life, real hard life for him. I remember one time that we were sitting in my office at at school, and I was sharing with him the gospel, and he finally said to me, it's too late for me. He was 19. He said, it's too late. God would never accept me now as I am. And these words still ring in my ear. He says, I'm damaged goods. And I laughed. And I said, well, welcome to the club. We're all damaged goods. The Bible says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that no one does good, no, not one. And then I pressed him hard with the truth. And I explained to him that in spite of his rebellion and in spite of his sin, and in spite of his just desert truly being an eternity in hell, that even now God was calling him to return, to become the son that he was created to be. It's never, ever, ever too late to return to the Lord regardless of your sins. Ever. God is eager to save sinners who come back to him. He's eager. In fact, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, for he says of God, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And then he says what? Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 
Today is the day of salvation. So when should you return to God? Right now, this very moment. So why are you waiting? Some of you are waiting. What are you waiting for? To get more holy? To take care of some of those sins? To get more religious? None of that works and none of that matters. God knows your heart through and through. And he says, even now, return to me and I will heal you. So question number one, when should you return to God? Now. Now. Question number two, how do we return? How do we come back into a right relationship with a living God as sinners? How do we do that? One of the many things that I love about Christianity, one of the many things, is that it's not a religion. Not in the worldly sense anyway. Religion puts the emphasis on man doing a good work in order for God to be pleased and receive him. Christianity puts the emphasis on God doing all the work that man might be received and brought back in to a right relationship with Christ. Religion says, do this work, these good deeds, exercise this religious practice, go to church, get baptized, read your Bible, feed the poor, and then when you come before God on that great day of judgment that Joel talked about, you'll have a chip in your pocket. You'll have some credit that you can put out there. And God's going to say to you, look at your life of sin. You say, yeah, and you're going to pull out that chip and you're going to say, but look at how I cared for my mom when she was sick. And look, over here I got another chip. I gave money to my neighbor when they couldn't afford their mortgage. And this chip over here, I, I didn't take that promotion when I really wanted it so my colleague could have it. Lord, that's got to be worth something. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but I have credit. You're in my debt, God, and now you must let me in. God doesn't play by those rules. God doesn't play by those rules. You are a sinner through and through, and only by the work of Jesus Christ and grace that flows from the cross can you come into his presence and not be condemned. Christianity is not religion. Christianity is establishing a relationship with the living God through the living Christ. My hope and your hope is not based upon our work. My hope and your hope is based solely upon the work of Jesus Christ hanging upon the cross, dying in your place and granting you mercy and grace. And so when God calls the prophet to tell the people to return to him, he's not saying, listen carefully, he's not saying get religious. He's saying, I want you to get radically relational. Don't, don't get religious and start doing things to make God pleased. He says, I want you to get right with God. Because Christianity fundamentally is not religion, it is relationship with the living God. You, those created in his image. And so to come back to him, we must come back in a particular way. Look with me at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with what? With all your heart. With fasting and with weeping and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. So this is, this is not a call to gather in church on Sunday. It's not a call to begin to engage in a Bible study or to go out and do ministry. This is a call by God for you with all your heart, with all of who you are, heart, mind, soul, strength, to come back to God into a right relationship. Sinners. Sinners. 
He's not saying to them, grieve over your circumstances, although they had good reason to. He said, grieve over the fact that the relationship has been broken. The reason that you've been judged, Judah, is because you sinned against me, and in sinning against me, we are separated. That's why he's saying return, because they are far away, and he wants them close again. This is a gracious father. He wants his people with him. They're barren. Their fields are barren. Their herds are sickly. The famine is upon them. That's all bad. But infinitely worse, which he wants them to see, he says, fast and weep and mourn, not because of your circumstances. I want you to fast and weep and mourn because of the sin that has separated us. He wants their hearts to be rightly broken. Rend your hearts and not your garments. To rend is to tear or to break. It was their hearts, was it not, that birthed the sin that brought the judgment. It was their hearts that rebelled against God that brought the locust plague. And so God is saying, what needs to be fixed is not your religion. What needs to be fixed is your relationship with me. So he says, rend your heart because that's what's broken. Get your heart right with me. Come back into a right relationship with me as your God. Do you remember David's plea to God after Nathan had confronted him with the sins of Bathsheba and Uriah? Do you remember? Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are what? Listen. A broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This, the way back is with a right heart. That right heart comes from Christ. God expects the sorrow to be internal and the resolution to be relational. He doesn't want external piety and he doesn't want us mourning over our circumstances, although some of us have circumstances to mourn over. So God never wants us to engage in religion to put him into debt. He wants us to return to him with all of our hearts and he wants us to do it collectively. Look at verse 15 with me. He says, come back to me with all your heart. Let there be an internal response to the broken relationship. And I want you to all do it together. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. So God says, I want you to return now, I want you to return with all your heart, and I want you to return in community as a people. Not just by yourself. This is such a powerful verse today, calling to the necessity of salvation and returning in community, as a people, not by yourself. There's no such thing as a a Lone Ranger maverick Christian. That's not in the Bible. God saves and brings into community. He calls his people collectively to return. This passage decimates our isolated, individualistic, maverick-like Christianity of the Christian world. It tears it apart. He says in verse 15, blow the trumpet. I want everyone to hear. Now, did you notice? That's the same trumpet he had just told the prophet to blow in chapter 2, verse 1. Same shofar, the ram's horn. He said, blow it from my holy mountain. And blow it because why? I'm coming to judge you. First time. Now, he says, blow it again. And gather the people because I've come to save you. Judgment the first time, salvation the second time. He says, I want everybody here. 
a holy fast, a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation. So he's not saying get in church. He's saying get the people together and worship me. This is a solemn, sanctified, holy gathering. Not a religious gathering. Just because you're in church does not mean this is a holy convocation. This can be religious or it can be set apart for God. There are many churches and many people that have gathered on this Sunday morning and they're doing something very similar. They had a few songs to sing and a few prayers were said and something's happening from these pulpits. But it can be religion and people can be going because it's Sunday morning. Putting in your time, checking off the box. I was there, Lord. That's my credit, remember? I'll put it before you. I went to church all my life. I read my Bible every day. Paul, God is saying, I do not want that. I want you as a people gathering together to worship me. With brokenness, with fasting, with mourning, with your hearts rightly torn. And he wants everybody. He's not okay with anybody missing out because he wants everybody to be saved. The elders, the children, even the nursing babies. That's no exception. Moms, bring your children Have them nurse. And in the context of this verse, he says even the bridegroom and the bride, they're they're off on their honeymoon is the picture. And by God's grace, they're consummating a family. And he says, leave the bride chamber and come here. So important was this gathering that even the bride and the bridegroom could not enjoy their honeymoon. And God is not doing that to be cruel. He doesn't want anybody to perish. He doesn't want the bride and the bridegroom out there when the church is gathered. He doesn't want the infant and mom out there when the church is gathered. The guilt was corporate. The judgment came upon the entire nation. The guilt was corporate, and therefore he wants the salvation to be corporate too. There's no such thing as returning to God and the remaining outside of the church. And there's so much of that today. Are you a Christian? Yes. Where do you church? Not where do you go to church, because you don't go to church. You are the church. Where do you church? Who do you commune with? Who do you worship with? Oh, I don't. That's not possible. It's not possible. If you know Christ, and you know the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 says, do not forsake the gathering. You're supposed to be in the church with community of believers. This is what God calls us to. He's a communal God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and he calls us to return to him and worship him in community. So much weird isolationism today in Christianity. And you don't see it anywhere in the scriptures. All right, so when are you to return to God? Now, how are you to return to God? With all your heart in community. Third question, I hope you're with me still. Why return? If you're telling me to return now, with all my heart, in the context of community, we're doing all right right now, at least at this moment. It's now. You're here. Why should I return? Look at verse 13 again. God repeats himself, return to the Lord your God. It's the second time that he says it in two verses. Why? He's emphasizing here the great desire he has for his people to be saved. Judgment had come, but he doesn't want them to perish. Judgment had come that they might turn to him and be saved. And now this might sound simple to you, but it really hit me. He says, return to the Lord, Joel speaking, return to the Lord, your God. Your God. Your creator. You are not here 
as a result of random point mutation, my beloved. You are not here because matter and energy and time got together and you were born. You are here because God created you. You have a creator and therefore you have a purpose. And so all the idols that we chase after, the work, the pride, the family, the children, the grandchildren, the money, all those things that we make inordinate, God, they are not your gods. We make them gods, but they are not. They did not create you and they cannot save you. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is your creator and he is your savior. And so Joel says something very simple. He says, return to your God. He's your God. What are you doing? Why are you out there? Why are you chasing idols? He's your God. Come back to him. To stay away from your creator, my beloved. It is the most foolish thing you can do. And not just for eternity. You say, well, of course, it's damnation that I face. Yes, but that damnation is the separation, not having God as your God. Being denied. Listen, being denied the most important relationship that you were created to have, you and God. Being denied an intimacy with someone who knows you through and through, and I know you shudder at that. He knows you through and through, all the way to the bottom, but in Christ, he loves you all the way to the top. That's how much he knows you, and that's how much he knows you, and why would you deny yourself that? Why would we in a culture so desperate for real relationships deny ourselves the one person who wants to love us most? It's beyond me. It's to deny yourself his daily sustenance, his daily watch care, his daily guiding you step by step, day by day. It is to deny yourself the knowledge of God and God knowing you. It's to deny yourself the love of God and your ability to love God in return. It is at its most basic level, you not returning to God is denying yourself the ability to be the very person that God created you to be. Your purpose is nullified. You were created, my beloved, to worship God, to glorify God, and to enjoy God. And apart from Christ, you cannot do that. If you don't return to God, how can you worship Him? If you don't return to God, how can you enjoy Him? And so God says, return to me. You're mine. I made you. Now, if you were here last week, you might be saying, you're sending a mixed message here, Pastor. You spent 45 minutes last Sunday talking about the Day of Judgment. You said, you said, Pastor, it's near. You said it's terrifying. You said it's inescapable. And you said that no one can endure under it. So why? Why would I go back to this God that's going to judge me like that? Why would I, why would I, a sinner... Deserving of judgment, run into the hands of a holy, just God. Criminals do not run to police stations. Tax evaders do not run to the IRS, and I've never seen an illegal alien run to a border patrol agent. So the question is, why should you return to God? Why should I? Why should anyone? He is your God, and He is good. Look at verse 13 again. Joel tells you why. Return to him for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. 
It is true that the day of the Lord is near. It is true that it is terrifying. The thought of it is terrifying. It is true that no one can escape it and no one can endure it unless you have Christ. And if you have Christ, then you can. You can endure it because he will cover you. If you remember what happened on Mount Sinai, remember when Moses comes down with the first set of tablets with the law and he sees the people, they're worshiping a golden calf, they're bowing down to the golden calf, and they're saying, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. God gets angry, but then he relents from his anger. He prescribes now another set of tablets with the law, and this is what he says to Moses about himself. Listen. He says of himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Joel was plagiarizing. Praise God. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions of sin. This is the favor upon God's people. But, he said, as God, I will by no means clear the guilty, visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So God's saying on the one hand, I am a holy God and I will judge. He must because he's good and a good judge will judge. And he says, at the same time, to the same people, if you return to me, if you return to me, your God, with all your heart, he says, I will be gracious and I will be merciful. I am abounding in steadfast love and I relent from disaster. It is so worthy of an amen, brother. God says to you, criminal, are you tired of a life of crime? You can come back to this police station because it is a police station that wants to clear your record and will be gracious and merciful with you. It is saying to you, tax evader, imagine if the IRS said, come back, we are gracious and merciful. We are abounding in steadfast love. You would return, would you not? Imagine if you were here as an illegal immigrant and, you said, and the INS sent you a message and said, we are a new INS now. If you come to us, if you return to us, we'll be merciful and gracious and we will do what is in your best interests. And if it's not to go back, then you can stay. I imagine my beloved, the criminals would be going to the police stations and the tax evaders would go going to the IRS and the illegal immigrants would be going to the INS. And God is saying to you, return to him. He is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. I love how James put it, James 4.8, as simple as it gets. God said, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Return to God and he will return to you. We separated ourselves from him. We broke the relationship. Sin caused it. God says, come on back, and I'm all in. If you have a picture of God sitting upon his throne, eager to judge and eager to punish, just waiting for you, sinner, to screw up one more time, can't wait for you to come in, then that's an idol. That's not the God of the Bible. He is holy, he is just, and he must judge, but he is also merciful and gracious and abounding, abounding, abounding in steadfast love. And you got to hold them together. He is holy and he is gracious. 
He is just and he is merciful. He gets angry, rightfully so. We're wrecking his creation. But he relents from his anger. It does not last forever. And unlike fickle man who we cannot trust, unlike man, he is steadfast. Steadfast love. You come back to him in Christ. He will never, ever let you go. He will not do that. He cannot because that's who he is. And that means that man's fate at this very moment Every living person's fate right now is not fixed in stone. Even now, we can return to God. Every single person you know in your life that does not know Christ, even now, can return to God. Every single person in your life that you have thought, they would never believe. I won't even share the gospel. They will never believe. Even now, they can return to God and be healed. It is a glorious, universal call for salvation. Because God does pull back his sword. He does relent. He does have mercy upon those whom he wants to have mercy. Joel said in verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent? Who knows? The prophet's good. He's careful. God is sovereign. God does not have to forgive anyone. God is not manipulated by anyone doing anything. So the prophet rightly says, who knows? He retains his sovereignty. And we know that God is fully justified in condemning every man, woman, and child in all of human history to an eternity in hell because that's what we have earned. That's what we deserve. So Joel rightly says, who knows? Maybe he'll relent. Maybe he will. What Joel hoped for, we have certainty in. Right? What Joel hoped for, we look back in faith and we are certain of what we hope for. Look at verse 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering. Joel says, given how gracious God is and how merciful he is and how abounding in steadfast love he is, he may leave, look it, a blessing behind. And what is that blessing here? A grain offering and a drink offering. And you're thinking, whoop-dee-dee. I mean, here I am, a sinner, standing before a holy God on, on the precipice of being plunged into an eternity in hell, and God gives me a grain offering and a drink offering? This is not a good gift. But it is a very good gift. Because if you were here two weeks ago, you heard the teaching on the grain offering and the drink offering. Remember, in order for the Jews, to stay in a right relationship with God, every morning and every evening, they had to offer to God a grain offering, a drink offering, and an unblemished lamb. And in so doing, their sins were mitigated by God. They were covered by God in that offering. But with the plague, they could not. There was no grain to make an offering, and there was no wine to make a drink offering. And so there was no worship. There was no sacrifice. There was no communion with God. And so what does God do here? Joel says, maybe he will leave for you a blessing, a grain offering, a drink offering. And you know what he left behind? It's Christ. Joel was looking forward to what we look back to. And that is God saying, return to me because I've made a sacrifice. Christ is the grain offering. He is the drink offering. He is the unblemished lamb. He's done the work so that we can return into a right, loving relationship with the Father. 
Christ is that offering. He covered it for us. 800 years from this prophecy, Jesus Christ became the cosmic grain offering, the cosmic drink offering. We know, the Bible says, Old New Testament, He is the unblemished Lamb that was sacrificed on our behalf. Why? Delivered over to death for our sins, Romans 4.25, and raised to life for our justification. So you should return to God because He is gracious and merciful. You should return to God because He's made a way out of death. He's made a way out of the great day of judgment that is to come. So I guess we might ask ourselves before the last question, why would you perish? Why would you die in your sins? Why would you not tell others about the opportunity to have life instead of dying in their sins? If God has said to you, now is the day to return, come to me with all your hearts and community. I am a gracious and merciful God, abounding in love, and I've made a way out for you, a covering in Christ. Then why wouldn't every single man do that? How dark is your sin? How deceiving is our sin that we would turn down a cosmic offer like this? Straight from heaven, God is saying, return to me and live. And we say no. All right. Last question, and I'll close. What compels God to receive us? I mean, he said, return to me even now. He said, return to me with all your heart in community. He said, return to me because I'm gracious and I'm merciful and I'm abounding in love and I've made a way out for you in the cross. Return to me for all these reasons. And so your last question, because you are ultra skeptical like me, he said, what would compel God to take someone like me into his kingdom? I know my heart, even as a saved man. I do not belong in his presence. I do not belong in his kingdom. What would compel God to save a sinner like me? His character and nature is sufficient, my beloved. If God says he's gracious and merciful, it is sufficient. Who in their right mind would want to be denied access to the most gracious, merciful, loving being in all the known universe? Joel gives us a greater reason. And I don't know if you saw it the first time. It's the glory of being able to sit on a passage for a week. There's a greater reason to return to the Lord, and that is his own glory. Look at verse 17. So he's called the people to gather, the elders, the children, the infants, the brides, the grooms, to gather, verse 17, between the vestibule and the altar. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? The vestibule was at the east end of the temple. The altar was in the center. And in between the two, there was a a large area for gathering. It was right outside of the holiest of holies. And the holiest of holies, the inner sanctum of the temple, is where God would come and be present with his people. The Ark of the Covenant was there. 
the mercy seat was there. It's where the, the priest on, on Yom Kippur would enter and offer a sacrifice for the people on behalf of God once a year. And so this is where he's gathered them, in his presence, in the temple. And then he tells the priest what to pray. He doesn't even say pray. He tells them what to pray. Look again. Spare your people, O Lord. This is what he tells the priest to pray. Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword amongst the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? And there's your answer. The greatest reason for you to return to God is because it glorifies his name. God has chosen to tie his name and his reputation to his church. He's linked the two inseparably. So his glory is attached to the welfare of his people. If his people are a byword, he becomes a byword. If his people are by his grace restored, his name is restored amongst the nations. I don't want you to miss this because it's the most fantastic piece of this passage. And I know we do because it's not all about us. It's all about God. And if it's not all about us, we're not all that interested. It's all about God. You should be interested because you get swept up in the glory. In Joel's day, the people believed that if a nation was prosperous and powerful, their God was powerful and good. If a nation struggled and was constantly being overcome by enemies, their God was weak and impotent and not good. If Yahweh refused to relent of the plague, the prayer that he says for the priest to pray is, Lord, your name will be maligned. If we remain like this destitute in judgment, then your name will not be glorified. And so God has the priest pray on the people's behalf for God's name to be glorified, to remove the judgment and remove the plague and restore right relationships with their God. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? You know what God's greatest desire is? You say, well, it must be to save me. Right? You must say, it must be to save us. It's not. He has a great desire to save his people. His greatest desire is always to glorify himself. Always. It's always to have his name rightly displayed amongst creation as the God that he truly is. The most powerful, listen, most beautiful, most important, most valuable, worthy being of being worshipped in all the universe. It is God's desire for him to be worshipped and glorified because he is God. And it would be wrong for him as God, as the most valuable, powerful, beautiful, majestic being in the universe for his glory to go anywhere else. It'd be wicked for him to do that and it'd be wicked for us because when God's, God's glory is manifest, his creatures are blessed. He said in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He cannot. And so what did he do? This, this God of ours went to extreme measures to keep his name great amongst the nations. Extreme measures. He sent his own son to intercede on our behalf. Listen to this. He sent Christ to become our reproach. To keep God's name 
glorified amongst the nations. So when Jesus Christ, our Savior, ascended the cross, he was standing between the vestibule and the altar. Those priests that said, spare your people, O Lord, Christ uttered those exact words, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Spare your people, O Lord. This is the prayer of our high priest as he was nailed to the cross. Jesus Christ tied himself to our sins. Our reproach became his reproach. We deserved it. Our sins have made us a reproach in all creation. We are a byword and rightly ridiculed. Christ was not. Christ was sinless, but he took all that upon himself. He became the byword. He became the reproach. So that in taking our shame, we could be made shameless. In taking our sins, we could be made sinless. Paul said it succinctly in Romans 15.3. Listen, for Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me, fell on Christ. Not only, not only that he might grant forgiveness from the cross, that you might receive grace and be healed and be saved and have an eternity with God. That is so glorious. But infinitely more important, Jesus Christ did this work to glorify his Father. And it's an amazing thing that we get caught up in it. Jesus prayed in John 17, hours before his crucifixion. Listen to the prayer. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The entire gospel story is now laid out. Jesus Christ came to glorify his Father. We get saved in the process. It's a great deal for us. But the purpose of Christ coming and living and dying and rising and creating a church for him is for God's glory. In taking the reproach of sinful man and redeeming a people like us, it makes God's name great. The nations hear of this powerful, saving, gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love God and they glorify his name. And they will. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This God is glorious. Saved and unsaved. So in other words, as I close, the most compelling reason for you to return to God is for God's glory. I know that sounds a bit theological. And maybe it doesn't sound all that great to us. It is right for you to return to God with a, a broken heart. That is good. He says, I will receive you. It is right to return to God because he is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. He will receive you. That's even better than the first one, but better than both of those. It is right to return to God because it glorifies his name and he is most interested in his own glory. You want an unequivocal reason to return to God? It's because it's glor he's glorified in that process and in so doing, you should return that's why you were made. That's your very purpose. That's why you breathe. Is to let the world know that he is holy and gracious, that he is just and merciful, that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's who he is. God rejoices 
in saving many through judgment. It brings him glory. So, will you this morning hear from the prophet Joel to return to God and return for the glory of God? Will you hear? Will you tell others that even now, God is calling them to return. He is their God. He made them. Will you tell others to return to God, not in religion but in faith, not with external displays but with a heart that is broken and contrite? And will you tell others that this God is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love? Will you tell others that He will receive them if they come in Christ? And will you tell them, lastly, that their very purpose is to bring Him glory, and He is wildly glorified in the salvation of souls. I pray that you will. I pray that you will not leave here today with any questions about your own returning. Even now, return to the Lord. And I pray you will not leave here today with a bound tongue, but you will go out from this place and tell the world of this glorious God. He will, when He comes again in glory in Christ, He will manifest Himself to the whole world. Everybody will know how glorious this God is. But not all will be saved. How glorious is some of the lost in our mission field would join the church and be part of the redeemed. Amen? Let's pray. Father, when we sing to you, be merciful to us, for we are sinners through and through. We ask that you would make that truth real in our lives. We know you are merciful and gracious because your Bible tells us you are. We know that you abound in steadfast love because you revealed that through all human history. None of us would be here right now if that were not true. We know that you desire to save for your own glory because you sent Christ to do an unthinkable work on behalf of unthinkable people. We know you desire it for your own glory or we would not be here. You persevere. You are patient with man. Father, I ask that you would bless this gathering this morning with a grand returning. That we would be like the people of Joel's day. That we would assemble like this between the vestibule and the altar. That we would find ourselves in your immediate presence, in the holiest of holies. And we would come to you fasting and mourning and weeping for our sins against you. And we receive all the grace and mercy that comes through Christ. And we rejoice in knowing now that the relationship has been restored in spite of all the judgment and all the circumstances, whatever we may be going through, Father, I pray that you would magnify your name and your glory in the restored relationship. Make it the most important thing in our lives, Lord. Let our love for you and your love for us dominate all the noise, all the distractions. Father, we praise you for calling us back. I pray we be faithful to come. In Christ's name, amen.